DW, Living Planet. The growth trajectory of plastics is just quite frankly scary. By 2050, we will produce between three to four times as much plastics as we're producing today. I really think plastics is a tangible expression of all that is wrong with capitalism. Plastic in its price doesn't take into account the externalities, the cost of pollution, the cost on marine health, the cost on human health. Plastics play a key role also in enabling the renewable energy uh, infrastructure, whether we talk about solar panels or wind turbine blades. Plastic's a wonderful material. The thing that's wrong with plastic is the way that we use it. We're designing things to last for 100 years and then we're using them for 20 minutes and throwing them away. That's the problem. Hi, Living Planet listeners. Charlie here. This week, Living Planet is taking a break. So we're bringing you an episode from our colleagues over at DW's On The Green Fence podcast. This episode is the first in their new mini season on plastic. Where did it even come from? How did we end up with so much of it? And how on earth do we deal with it, considering its firm, plasticky grip on modern society? Neil King takes us on this journey today. In the meantime, if you have any feedback for us at Living Planet, or questions and topics that you'd like us to cover on the show, you can always reach out to us by emailing livingplanet at dw.com. Okay, I'll let Neil King take it from here. Enjoy. Each year, the world produces 430 million tonnes of plastics, according to the OECD. And that figure is set to triple by 2060. The growth and enduring popularity of plastic isn't surprising. In many ways, it's a miracle substance, lightweight, durable, malleable and cheap. It's revolutionised sectors such as transport, medicine, agriculture and construction. Modern life is impossible without plastic. But it also comes with problems. Most plastics are made with fossil fuels. The carbon emissions produced by manufacturing them is on a par with the aviation industry. If nothing is done to change that, emissions from the plastic's life cycle are set to more than double by 2060, reaching 4.3 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions. The sector will need to decarbonise to meet global targets to prevent runaway climate change. And then there's pollution. The qualities that make plastic so valuable, its durability and strength, also make it a nightmare for the environment. If it ends up in nature, it can take centuries to break down. Only 9% of plastic waste is actually recycled. The rest is incinerated, goes to landfill or ends up as litter, about 22%. And once in the environment, it often splits up into smaller pieces, so-called microplastics. And these have been found just about anywhere scientists have looked for them, in the deepest parts of the ocean, in snow on Mount Everest, inside seabirds and also in the human body. The international community is trying to do something about this. The United Nations is negotiating a global treaty to end plastic pollution, kind of like the 2015 Paris Agreement to tackle climate change. The plan is to have a draft deal by November this year and a final treaty with binding measures to manage the entire life cycle of plastic is to be finalised by 2024. While governments are agreeing on measures to make sure less plastic ends up in the environment, scientists and entrepreneurs are working on other solutions. For example, technologies to improve recycling, including engineering bacteria that can eat plastic. 
Other innovators are creating fossil-free plastics out of entirely new materials that can biodegrade by themselves, or designing a way to remove microplastics from water. But the best solutions may fall short if we fail to grasp the dynamics that made us so dependent on plastics to begin with. Plastic seemed like this miracle material in the early days, an answer to a lot of problems, um, offering a lot of great things for life. That's Susan Frankel, a journalist from the U.S. and the author of the book *Plastic: A Toxic Love Story*. In it, she documents the rise of plastic and how it came to be that we live in a world pervaded by plastic stuff. And at a certain point, we have sort of come to realize that we are very dependent on this stuff that has serious, serious problems, both for our health and for the environment. Looking at that storyline from rapture to disenchantment, it really describes sort of a love affair gone wrong, or even more than that, a kind of dysfunctional relationship because we are utterly dependent. On this stuff that is very bad in many ways for us. Okay, so let's go back to where this romance began, and for that we need to go back more than a hundred years to a time before plastics, when many of the objects around us would have been made from materials from the natural world, things like wood, glass, metals, ivory, silk, tortoise shell. But around this time, in the second half of the 19th century, there was growing awareness about the limits of what the natural world could offer, and the search for new, malleable materials was on. Chemists and inventors had been experimenting with different substances. They already had natural polymers, plastics such as rubber and shellac, but things took a leap forward with the discovery of celluloid. I'll let Susan explain the rest. And celluloid came about. Partly out of concern over the potential extinction of elephants, so elephants were being hunted for their ivory, and in the late 19th century, ivory was used for all sorts of things. You know, for buttons, for cane heads, for the handles of silverware. There was a big demand for ivory, but one of the biggest demands was for ivory uh, to be used for billiard balls. Billiards had become a super popular game, and there were concerns that there was such demand for ivory that elephants were being hunted into extinction.、Mm. So, in the late 1860s, one of the billiard ball makers、uh, published an ad soliciting any inventive genius to come up with an alternative or substitute for ivory. That ad caught the eye of a kind of amateur inventor named John Wesley Hyatt. Who decided he might try to do something, and he began tinkering, trying different materials, and eventually had this big breakthrough of combining cellulose, which was basically cotton, and、um, camphor and other solvents, and came up with this material that was hard but also could be molded. It was malleable. It sort of had the consistency of shoe leather, and he called it celluloid. And celluloid was a pretty big commercial success. It was used for dentures, buttons, hairpins, and combs, just to name a few applications. And the great thing was that it mimicked premium natural products such as ivory or tortoise shell. So it looked like the real thing, but it was much cheaper and could be mass produced. So that was kind of the start of the romance. This new thing, this new material that enabled people to have.、Um, Kind of luxurious-looking items, or 
not so luxurious, just simple items, but at a fairly cheap price. Today's military weapon becomes tomorrow's peacetime instrument. Plastics will play as large a role in peace as they do in war. World War II helped build the plastics industry, and the way it did it is there was a, a real need for uh, materials to supplement the traditional natural materials like steel or silk or brass. And the military called on the plastics industry, which was still a very young industry, to see if they could come up with uh, viable alternatives. And by that time, enough new plastics had been developed and there was enough sort of expertise in polymer production and engineering that the industry complied and they started developing things for the military. So for instance, in place of silk parachutes, the new DuPont, which had recently invented nylon, was able to, to supply nylon parachutes, or you were able to come up with a hard plastic to replace the helmets. So that demand to supply the military during the war led the industry to sort of vastly ramp up its production capacity and its sophistication in manufacturing. And, you know, production of plastics basically quadrupled over the course of the war. This wasn't just a time of technological change, uh, was it? I mean, there were advances in science and chemistry, but also there was a lot of social change around this, wasn't there? Well, yes. I mean, you know, I think there was, it was sort of a perfect storm of things. I mean, the war ends and you have people who suddenly have a lot of money to spend and there's a lot of money being pumped into the economy and consumers, at least in this country, are being actively pushed to consume. It's considered a patriotic duty to, you know, to buy a home, to outfit it with new furniture and the latest kitchen appliances and so forth. For today, plastics are changing the appearance of our everyday world. As the years go by, new materials will be found, new processes discovered, and new machinery invented. Not by those now engaged in industry, but by you. With new uses, there arise new wants. New wants mean new markets, new prosperity. So you have this big push of consumption, you have this industry that has vastly ramped up its production capability and now needs a place to sell its stuff. And those two things come together very nicely in the decades after the war. My mama done told me, she told me, hun, we're having a party. A Tupperware party. We're gonna have a... Plastics wasn't responsible for sort of the consumer lifestyle that developed after the war. But it certainly facilitated it because it made it possible to supply a lot of stuff for cheaper. It made a lifestyle of convenience and comfort and ampleness possible after the war. It sort of facilitated the changes that were taking place. So plastics didn't make fast food franchises occur, but the availability of plastic packaging made it easier to sell mm. food on the go. It didn't, you had the rise of self-serve grocery stores and drug stores and plastics supplied this packaging that made it possible for consumers to really 
see what they were pulling off the shelf and, you know, to create kind of enticing packages or see-through packages so you could see if, you know, the bologna was still good or not. It facilitated these things. In the 70s, when women began entering the labor force, plastic packaging around kind of pre-prepared food, you know, frozen meals and so forth, made it easier for women to go into the workforce and no longer necessarily have to come home and whip up a whole meal from scratch. I mean, this sort of new throwaway mentality or idea, I mean, how new was this for people? Was it was this something that people, you know, accepted very fast and willingly? Or was it something that was foreign, that uh, you'd have something that would just end up in the bin, which actually had value, right? I mean, it's, it's from fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was a new idea in many ways. I mean, and, and if we just sort of look at the 20th century, you know, the people who are coming out of the war was a generation that had come through the depression and through the war years and had come through years of sort of skimping and saving and really raised on an ethos of, you don't throw stuff away, you find a way to reuse it. And plastics first went into durable goods. But once that market became fairly saturated, there was a very conscious effort, you know, you might even say a little cynical effort on the part of the plastics industry to expand. They, they recognized that the newest markets were going to be in disposables. And so suddenly you get this big push into packaging and other kinds of disposable goods. And those were a hard sell to a generation that had grown up on an ethos of not throwing stuff away. I mean, when the first coffee vending machines came into use and they had these little plastic cups that the coffee would come down into, people wanted to reuse them and they had to be taught, oh, no, 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 you don't reuse it, you can throw it away. When the first plastic bags came out, again, there was sort of this initial resistance um, and part of the resistance was to the idea that you were taking this thing that was going to be completely thrown away. It's not really the way that society worked for most of our existence. Uh, we had uh, found ways to reuse things, whether it's pulling the nail out of an old piece of wood and to make something else with it or unraveling an old wool sweater to use the wool again and knit something else. Or, you know, the people who used to go through, instead of tossing trash, would go through trash and pull out viable things. I mean, ped that used to be a whole lifestyle for peddlers in the 18th and 19th and 20th century. I guess um, also some somewhere there at the heart of the problem w w that I sort of sense is problematic is the fact that virgin plastics are still, I mean, to this day, they're cheaper than actually recycling the product. And perhaps also this, this throwaway mentality was kind of generated from the fact that people were offered new brand new products at a cheaper price than actually repairing things or redoing things. And uh, I mean, that's in a way, that's a sickness, isn't it? In a way that we still suffer from. Absolutely. It, it, it is a sickness. I really think plastics is the, a tangible expression of all that is wrong with capitalism and the ways in which it encourages a mentality of just constant consumption, continued growth and expansion and new, new, new is the best way to exist. And, you know, plastic aids that. One of the problems with plastic things is you can't repair them. You can't fix them. If something plastic is broken, you can't really do anything with it. And a lot of plastic things, we don't even really know how they work. I 
I think the turning point is really the late 60s, early 70s. I think that's when, you know, we're starting to get saturated with a lot of single-use plastics. And culturally, you know, one of the touchstones is when The Graduate came out. Uh, that's a movie. But it came out in the late 60s. And there's this infamous line where the main character, Benjamin Braddock, is a college graduate back at home after he's graduated from college. He's just has no idea what he wants to do with his life. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. What do you think about it? By that time, plastics sort of suggest this just dreadful, airless, vapid future. And I don't think it's coincidental that around the time that movie comes out is also when you start to get the first reports of plastics in the ocean. That's when you start to get the first reports that chemicals that are in some plastics are leaching into human bodies. I think we're starting to see that our lives are suffused with plastics that very explicitly are, are pushed as something that can be easily thrown away, that are valueless. So I think that's sort of the turning point. And then it's kind of an up and down course from that point on to the present day, where I think we it's generally understood that plastics are a big problem. Because up until then, it was the other way around, wasn't it, really, that plastics had more of a reputation of being hygienic, easy to clean. Um, you just wash them and you've got rid of all the muck and nothing sticks. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's, it's a bit of a reversal, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there were, yes, in a broad sense, yes. Um, it's a bit of a reversal. I mean, plastics also, the first plastics were pushed as durable things. I mean, they went into durable products. They went into things like, you know, kitchen counters or refrigerators or televisions or cars. And they were touted for their durability and for their strength. And then once we start to move into plastics going into single-use stuff and into junk, it loses that cachet. And um, although I don't think it was ever explicitly stated that this is a worthless product, you know, that association gets made at some level in the culture's mind. It's hard to wrap your mind around what the level of plastics in the environment really means. And, you know, like the idea that microplastics could cross the blood-brain barrier, it's just, it makes you shudder. But I also don't actually know what that means. I feel like we, we don't really understand what we've done here. And that also, I think, then complicates the search for answers um, or for solutions beyond the very clear need that we got to turn off the tap at the source. I mean, we have to stop producing so much plastic. Many thanks to Susan Frankel for joining us. As we've heard, plastic production and plastic waste is projected to continue growing over the next few decades, as is the plastic's carbon footprint. So addressing these problems is going to require a rethink of how we produce, use and dispose of this valuable material. Asia is currently the largest producer of plastics in the world – 
China alone accounted for 32% of global production in 2021, while North America is in second place with around 18%. Europe is responsible for around 15% of production. The Plastic Waste Makers Index says just 20 petrochemical companies are behind the production of more than half of all single-use plastic. US-based company ExxonMobil is at the top of the list, followed by US chemicals company Dow and China's Sinopec. Together, these three account for 16% of polymers destined for single-use plastic. Looking more closely at plastic waste, the biggest contributor on that front is the US, where the average person generates 221 kilograms per year, according to the OECD. In European countries, it's around 114 kilograms per person, so about half that. In China and India, it's under 20 kilograms. Now, the UN argues that the global community can cut plastic pollution by 80% by 2040 if it moves away from virgin plastics and reduces the amount of plastic produced in the first place. We'd also have to dramatically improve reuse and recycling systems so that these products stay in the economy and don't end up in the environment. Now, more than 100 countries have implemented their own measures to target plastics, including restrictions or taxes on single-use plastics. EU countries have banned disposable plastic plates, straws, cutlery and cotton buds. China has also banned single-use bags and utensils from major cities. India, too, has banned the use and production of single-use plastics. Spain has a tax on non-reusable plastic packaging, while the UK taxes plastic packaging that has less than 30% recycled plastic. Some of the measures being intensely negotiated as part of the UN Plastic Treaty include caps on plastic production, reducing problem plastics that are difficult to recycle and placing restrictions on certain hazardous chemicals. I asked Sheila Agawal Khan, Director of the Industry and Economy Division at the United Nations Environment Programme, what else we can expect. So, of course, the global instrument that is being negotiated now is being negotiated by member states. And so member states will decide on the level of ambition they, they choose to have. Um, and they would be able to set the regulation and laws in place to be able to change behavior of manufacturers um, across the full value chain. But at the end of the day, of course, we're also expecting industry actors, again, across the full value chain to also come forward and already start taking action even ahead of a treaty being negotiated. At UNEP, I mean, do you, do you get a sense of just how much pushback there is from the fossil fuel and also the plastics industry um, towards, you know, this uh, global treaty? Or are they, are they playing along? Are they willing to compromise? Um, I think it's a mixed bag. I don't think I could say that it's a homogenous situation. Um, we see some looking at post-consumer resin in their in their production of polymers. Um, we see others looking at substitute materials, but but we haven't seen changes in terms of the kind of additives going into the plastics that are being produced. And we haven't seen changes in terms of the, the, the range of different polymers that are being produced, some of which are not recyclable. The, the connection between carbon emissions, the, the climate crisis, and also the, the plastics industry, the fossil fuel industry. Um, I mean, we're using plastics for practically everything these days in, in, in the modern day world. Um, it, it's hard to imagine it functioning without plastics right now. Um, what happens to plastics if we, you know, actually implement our Paris 
climate target goals and go net zero by 2050? Because then the carbon emissions um, that are caused by plastics would also have to go to net zero, wouldn't they? Yes, and in fact, we see industry trying to move towards net zero. Um, I guess the biggest challenge is, is, you know, if we will be able to have substitutions to be able to, and substitutions that actually also don't have a footprint. Um, I guess the, we would, of course, see a lot of less plastic pollution than we have today. But it would really mean a change at a systemic level across the full value chain. Okay, so it's high time to hear from the plastics industry now. My name is Virginia Janssens, and I'm the Managing Director of Plastics Europe. Plastics Europe is a trade federation that is based in Brussels and represents member companies who produce over 90% of all polymers across Europe. There's a lot at stake for the European plastics industry, which employs around 1.6 million people and creates a turnover of 360 billion euros. We need to recognize the severity of the climate crisis and the challenge of plastic wage. It's huge, so we need to be very ambitious in this regard. For us as well, I mean, we work with the premise discarded plastic waste is unacceptable in any environment. And that is our guideline in our action as well and our driver. So we support as an organization and our members, of course, the very same objective to end plastic pollution by 2040. And we want to support that through the creation of a circular economy. So it sounds like the industry recognises the problem and is willing to transform. And we'll be looking more closely into the aspect of recycling in a separate episode of this series. But while recycling sounds good, most critics say it's completely insufficient to address the problem and that plastics production needs to be capped at the source. So I asked Virginia how she feels about a cap on plastics production. Our answer to making sure that we end plastic pollution, uh, Neil, and where we see the biggest fair and just impact is to work rather at the application level and see where there is problematic and evaluate where there is problematic unnecessary plastic applications that are just prone to be littered, for instance. There's a lot of people speaking about caps but they all have different caps in mind. They have different definitions in mind. Uh, is it a cap on virgin? Is it a cap on, on everything? How will that play out? How will that be applied fairly at a global level when we look at developing countries, developed countries, the need for plastics as well as a material in developing countries? How can this be done at the polymer site? Okay, so we'll leave Virginia there for now. We will be hearing more from her throughout the series. My main takeaway from the chat with her was that the industry opposes a cap on plastics production and instead wants to ramp up the recycling infrastructure, something that will likely render the UN Plastic Treaty talks more complicated. But what happens if the talks fail and we don't get a binding UN Plastics Treaty in 2024? I put that question to Sheila from UNEP. I think a very big worry because we're seeing a growing amount of literature coming out on the health impacts and and so and even as we speak you know we're constantly being sent new scientific findings on on the impacts of microplastics on health and so some say you know are we going to just keep waiting as the evidence starts to grow and are we going to just end up with a legacy of plastic pollution that will not be manageable and that is not just going to affect the environment, but human health as well. 
Okay, so Sheila had the final word in this episode, and her reference to the legacy of pollution and what this could mean for planetary and human health is actually the perfect segue to our second episode, which is going to be about microplastics, including some promising solutions and innovations to tackle this growing problem. Every single water sample that we've ever studied from anywhere in the world, we can find tiny pieces of plastic. Just about every species that we've studied, we've been able to show that they're either ingesting plastics or they've got plastics in their tissues. I think we were equally as shocked when we found out that tires is the second largest microplastic pollutant in our oceans, yet nobody is talking about it. You just add this adsorbent into the water, put the magnet all adsorbent and microplastic, it will be separated from the water and clean water can be passed through and used. So that's what we'll be looking at in the next episode of our series on plastics. I hope you'll be joining us for that. Time to wrap up. Many thanks to my colleague and producer Natalie Muller and my sound engineer Michael Springer. And a big thanks to all the interviewees featured in this episode for taking the time and sharing their expertise and views. And as always, a big thank you to all our listeners for sharing, reviewing and subscribing to On the Green Fence. My name is Neil King. Take it easy and take care. On the Green Fence. You've been listening to an episode of DW Environment's On the Green Fence podcast from their new mini-season on plastic. You can find the rest of the season and all of their other episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. From plastic to lab-grown meat to AI to edible cities, On the Green Fence covers a whole bunch of fascinating innovations and how they relate to the environment. So I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't done so already. As for Living Planet, we'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. And in the meantime, if you'd like more DW Environment content, you can read our stuff online at dw.com slash environment. You can also watch it on YouTube and TikTok. Just search for DW Planet A to find us there. And you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for DW Global Ideas and Environment. I'm Charlie Shield. Thanks for listening.